Welcome to Puto Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, Metro Columnist, and I'm joined by Kerry Clack, Columnist, Editorial Board, and Metro Editor Greg Jefferson. We're recording this, uh, well, we're actually recording this on, on Halloween, and uh, you'll probably be hearing it uh, uh, sometime in the next 24 hours or so. And we're basically a week before Election Day for the 2022 midterms. And we're really uh, lucky to have someone who can help us make sense of it because we've struggled to make sense of, of this uh, election cycle. We, our guest today is uh, Professor John Taylor. He's the department chair and professor in the Department of Political Science and Geography at UTSA. Professor Taylor, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Appreciate being here. Um, I wanted to start by by asking about, and I, and I, I really don't know, and you, you can probably give us some insight on this. I really don't know how reliable any poll is in, this, in, in 2022 in this, okay, in time this to modern leave. era. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that's, a, that's a tough one. But, um, but having said that, uh, in the last week and a half or so, we, we've had, uh, we had a poll from the Texas Politics Project, which had uh, Greg Abbott up by 11 uh, percentage points over Beto O'Rourke in the governor's race. Beacon Research had a poll that had essentially a dead heat, a two-point uh, edge for Abbott. And uh, just very recently, UT Tyler uh, had a poll that had Abbott up by six points. So when you, uh, as somebody who, who is, uh, you know, studies politics the way you do, when you have, these, these polls are telling three completely different <laughs> stories. Um, how do you assess the, all this conflicting information? First of all, you have to remember that, that polling is nothing more than a snapshot in time. Depends on time, date, depends on the kind of, of sample size. It depends on what, whether or not we're talking about likely voters or registered voters. Right. Those all come into play. Um, in fact, I'll just use the UT Tyler poll, the most recent one. It actually, if you look at the margin of error, it actually shows that O'Rourke and Abbott are close to a dead heat with likely voters. It's about a three point, mm -hmm. three and a half point swing. Gut feelings now come into play at this point as much as, as statistics. I used to teach, to, don't teach stats anymore. I used to teach stats. Mm -hmm. And it does concern me that we see these wide swings in right. variability um, between polling and the, and the kinds of, 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 of numbers we're seeing suggest, to me, suggest one, a volatile race. Two, I'm holding up my cell phone, suggests that a lot of people are still not being captured because of these things because right. I mean, we go back to the 1990s. Um, in the 1990s, the American Political Science Association and the Association of uh, basically AARP, which is the uh, the polling research people, basically mm -hmm. it's their own organization, talked about the difficulties of polling in the 90s because of caller ID. Now we know today. Wow. We know today when you get a cell phone call and you're looking yeah. at it like I don't know this number. I'm not going to answer it. Yeah. That's one of the problems with polling right have now. Have they been able to to get past that? Yeah, you use you actually have internet polling instead. Mm. Now, people say, well, internet polling, it's like, you know, voting for your favorite uh, Spurs player. No, not the same thing. <laughs> in this case, what it is, you're identifying people. You're in what's called a, a pooled survey in which you have a number of people who are sampled out of the pool. Mm -hmm. And they're being given a series of questions that are, that are basically rotated so you can get a pretty decent kind of response from people. So what you're getting is a mix of both internet and telephone surveying. But even there, there's going to be error. There's always error. As, as we remind students in poli-sci stats classes, there is nothing that is ever 100% certain, nothing whatsoever, which is why you have this margin of error and confidence interval and confidence level. Um, God, now I'm teaching a stats class. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I guess I'm auditing a stats class. You want to be 95%. The threshold is 95% confidence. You want to be confident 95% of the time this poll is right. Which means 5% of the time it could be complete disaster. 
which we've seen. We've seen these polls take place in, in, in Texas and American politics and outside of America. So let's say we have a, a margin of error of plus or minus three and a half percent. And let's say Abbott 48 or Rourke 45. That could tell us that Abbott or Rourke are essentially tied. It also tell us that Abbott has a six point lead. You just don't know. And that's the thing about, about polling is we just don't know. We have a good feel, but we're not completely certain here. Now, this is where the two campaigns, we'll use O'Rourke and Abbott, are likely doing focus groups, asking people about, you know, how is this ad resonating? How is this particular issue resonating? Mm -hmm. What can we do and what can we say in this? And would this be a better ad than this ad? And they're doing that. You can tell based on how Abbott is focusing on O'Rourke is radical. O'Rourke is, you know, he's, oh, my God, he's going to destroy the state. That's playing in the focus group. At the same time, mm -hmm. the O'Rourke ads are talking about Abbott has failed Texas. He's been here for eight years. That resonates, obviously, with his focus groups as well. Mm -hmm. Now, um, if, you know, in 2018, uh, when Beto O'Rourke ran against Ted Cruz for the U.S. Senate, um, I mean, it was, it was a race that kind of captured the, the public's imagination, really on a national level. It became kind of a, a political rock star because of that and created a lot of excitement. Um, but there, I, there were also pe uh, people that I know who, who supported him, who, who felt that there were some flaws with the campaign that, you know, for instance, he didn't necessarily do that well in the debates. He didn't, uh, he raised a lot of money, but I think some people thought maybe it wasn't spent in the most efficient ways. Um, uh, there were some questions maybe about the organization. When you look at this, the campaign he's run this time, are there, are there any flaws or anything that you think he could have done better? Um, <laughs> raise more money, but that's that's, yeah, a, that's yeah. a perennial problem for Democrats in Always, Texas. Yeah. I mean, my God, Grab Greg Abbott is going to set the record for the most expensive campaign in Texas history, mm -hmm. over a hundred million dollars. Beto, for goodness sakes, has raised sixty to seventy million. He's he's approaching Tony Sanchez two thousand two levels for goodness sakes. So you know, you can say fundraising. I'm being disingenuous by saying that because yeah. that's just yeah. I mean, he's done. I will give her work credit. He's done something that a Democrat has not done in years, and that is to go into small towns, go into West Texas. Mm -hmm. To me, it was telling yesterday. Greg Abbott is in Lubbock, for God's sakes, reddest of red areas of Texas. <laughs> he's campaigning in Lubbock. That tells me maybe his internal polling is telling him that things aren't nearly as you know ooh, wide between between O'Rourke and Abbott as, as people think it is. If I, if I were to criticize O'Rourke, it would be, and he came to UTSA, even got a photo up with him. I love him going to college campuses, but, and this is no disrespect to college students, those that are listening, for God's sakes, you got to turn out better. And I get trying to energize students and student voters. Great, fantastic, show up. And that's the thing, O'Rourke probably should be concentrating more on suburban Texas and suburban women in Texas, who are to me one of the biggest swing voters in the state right now. Do you think that Governor Abbott is a real is at a serious disadvantage with them right now? Those suburban voters. I think he is. Why is that? I think he is because of, he's because if you talk about especially let's, the, the aftermath of the, the Dobbs decision, SB eight. How shall I say this politely? They're going to be Don't worry about Just be suburban moms, say in the Woodlands or in uh, or in Highland Park, who are or, or, or for that matter Alamo Heights, who all of a sudden discover that their 16 year old daughter is pregnant, and all of a sudden they got to either take a trip to New Mexico or find some other alternative. They're not, probably not going to be very pleased that you have these laws on the books right now. I think that. Particularly when you're doing things like Abbott saying things like, well, somebody can just take plan B if they get sexually assaulted. 
is, is completely tone deaf in the way that I think the governor understands this issue. I think that hurts him. And then let's, let's add something else to the mix. If you're talking about suburban moms, you're talking about safety. And in particular, the aftermath of Uvalde and his inability to do anything regarding, well, you know, we can't change the law. Well, you know, we can't do anything. No, we can't fire the DPS director. Can you think of, of uh, another election when there were there was another issue? Well, actually, two issues, like you just said, Dobbs and Uvalde, which was such a just a great unknown going into the election day. Yeah, you know, that's a good question because I'm not certain that we've seen something like this where there's been several big national issues essentially impact a state race. Texas, usually you don't nationalize issues. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It's all about delivering the bacon and doing whatever as governor. And instead, what we're seeing is a nationalization of this particular campaign. For good and for bad, um, Abbott did this for one reason. You know, you might, or work made a mistake by not saying, I thought you were running for governor, not for president, by attacking Biden the whole time. That's the thing is, is that Abbott's been really good at nationalizing things. O'Rourke, for his part, has not done a good job of addressing issues that I know are of concern to middle-class voters and working-class voters, and that is inflation. And what are you going to do about it? The governor's not going to be able to do much about it, but he needs to address it better. And so I think, I mean, if there's, if, God, I'm trying to think of a parallel. Going back in, in Texas politics, be it 1978 with Clements versus, versus John Hill, no. Clements versus White in 82, no. Clements versus White again in 86, no. 90, Clayton Williams. Well, You mentioned the Clayton Williams 1990 race. I mean, that's been kind of a source of, of some inspiration right. uh, or hope for Democrats saying that, yeah. you know, that Ann Richards trailed, I think, for the, the entire the race. Entire now, race. It was unique because in Clayton Williams, you had somebody who had never held an office, yeah. had a lot of money, but yeah. not a lot of political experience. And, no. He was and uniquely self-destructive. Thank you. many things, but he's, uh, <laughs> he's not self-destructive. Oh, no, he's not self-destructive. Yeah. He is, in fact, he is overly cautious. That's right. Yeah. And that's, I think, fascinating because, I mean, Clayton Williams. <laughs> I, I have to tell the story. I always tell this to my Texas politics class students, and it's, it's this. I said... I said, most of you have never heard of Clayton Williams. You know, they're really young, 18, 20 years old. I said, Clayton Williams is the fulcrum and the focus point of modern modern global politics, not just American politics. I'm like, what? I said, had Clayton Williams won in 1990, he would have run for re-election in 1994. Oh, mm. great. George W. Bush would not have been able to run for, for governor until 1998 if he had run for anything. George W. Bush would not have become president in 2000. Clayton Williams is the fulcrum of history. That is <laughs> amazing. I, 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 believe it or not, I wrote a column along those lines many years ago. Oh, yeah. And because I've, I go down these these kind of what-if rabbit holes, and I, <laughs> I – That's well, the my, biggest what-if, trust well, my me. My point was that, that the um, – you know, the, the war in Iraq probably wouldn't have right. happened because George W. Bush. I mean, no. I think he was uniquely obsessed with Iraq. Oh, yeah. And uh, coming out of 9-11. Obama doesn't get elected then. Obama doesn't come on the scene, maybe. If that's wow. not Iran. It's quite possible. So, so Clayton Williams. No, I, Trump may not come that's on the right. scene. Same thing. So I think thanks to you now, we, we have oh actually God. determined Clayton Williams is the most important political <laughs> figure right. of our lifetime. In, in, in our lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, it's it's amazing. Yeah. We should just end now. Yeah. It's like, Did not blow your mind. Yeah, we're, we're done. We're done. <laughs> well, you were saying uh, you made, <laughs> that was great. We made the point about uh, uh, the suburbs, and 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 I mean, there's some sense of realignment. Republicans are trying right. to make inroads in the valley and heavily Latino areas. Democrats are are certainly doing better in the suburbs. 
But you know, the state's growing so much. The Latino uh, uh, part of the population is growing. There's been this sense uh, among Democrats for as long as I can remember that time is on their side. What do, what do you make at this point? I mean, they're, they're still losing the statewide elections, but right. there have been, you know, there have been some right. 2018, there were some closer races. Closing the gap. What do you think? Well, there's a phrase we use, again, in political science. Demography is not destiny. Yeah. And the result sure. is, is that just because there's a burgeoning Latino population does not mean that all of a sudden Texas is going to turn blue this year or in 26 or in 2032. Um, in fact, you're going to have to sell Latino voters, much like you have to sell black voters, white mm. voters, or anybody else on your policies and your ideas. And so I think this is where the Trump people, and in particular the Republicans, have tried to make inroads in the valley. Um, you know, they claim, oh, it was a big turnaround in 2020. Trump got all these votes. You know, he didn't win any of those counties, people need to remember. But he came close, obviously, and that's what kind of spooked people. Republicans, for their part, decided let's do some really big get-out-the-vote efforts, outreach efforts. So they created two outreach centers, one in McAllen and one in San Antonio, to try to start focusing on Latino voters. It first paid off with John Lujan's election, the special, special election in 118. We'll see if he survives the regular election this time. And then you saw the Democrats fumble the ball in the biggest way I think possible in this state in the last year, and that is to not run a strong candidate in the special election for CD34. They gave the Republicans an easy win. And the result is now the, the Republicans have been able to shift the narrative to South Texas is going Republican. South Texas is turning red. We're going to have the three Latinas all elected in 34, 28, and 15. Let's see in a week. Slow your roll. But yeah. it's, it is something Democrats need to focus on because the Democrats, and they've said, and you see this in polling, Latino voters will say, much like black voters will say, you're taking us for granted as Democrats. You need to sell us and you need to continue to sell us. This is a crazy thought, right? So, but, so, okay, so uh, the Texas GOP is, is making inroads in South Texas among uh, Hispanic voters. Is it simply a matter of how they, how they talk to Latino voters? Or at some point, is, that gonna, is, is their courtship of, of this electorate, like is it going to reflect, is it going to be reflected in the policies, like what they actually do at the legislature? Yeah, that's a good question. Let's see what happens in January 23. Right. I'm not right, holding right. my breath. It's going to necessarily translate into Greg Abbott. To Greg, all of a sudden deciding he's you know Being Lat a Latino Latino Texans best friends in the right, legislature. Right. I got yeah. I got my doubts of that. Uh -huh. uh, <laughs> particularly Republicans in the legislature in general, when you've got a lieutenant governor, is even uh -huh. more hostile. Um, this is why it's I found it amusing the other day um, when the governor in I guess it was in Houston. He said that he was open to casino gambling. Sure, Greg, whatever you say. Um, that said, you know, who's the person that's going to stop that if he's reelected? Dan Patrick immediately. So it's kind of an empty promise on the part of Pat, uh, on the part of Greg Abbott. That's my thought regarding Latinos mm. is that Abbott can make these lofty promises, but I doubt he's going to deliver on them. He's going to, the first thing he's going to talk about, we know this already. He's talked about it already. We're going to have a $27 billion surplus in the, in the, for, for, for going into the 23 session. Half of it's going to be used to pay down property taxes. Okay, let's see what happens with that even too and how long that lasts. Um, with all the other pressing priorities, I'm not sure what's going, you know, the governor, how he's going to succeed on that. You've got, you've got some more Freedom Caucus Republicans in the state legislature pushing for the abolition of property taxes in this state. 
To which I then asked the question, how are you going to pay for government other than the fact that you're big believers in minimalist government? How are you going to pay for the basic services of state government? The answer is raising sales tax to what, 25? I was going to say that. Yeah, to be that. <laughs> yeah, 25 cents on the dollar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My God. Well, this is probably asking too much of you, uh, yeah. but, uh, but <laughs> people, while we're here, people, people do it all the time. Yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to shoot the My 14-year-old son you know? does it. Come on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> can, you, can you help us, ex- uh, can you help explain for us the, the, the phenomenon, I guess, Ken Paxton's political survival. I mean, this is someone who's been indicted for seven years. If I ever get indicted, I, yeah. I want his attorneys. But, and this is, I mean, he got primary too. It isn't yeah. just, I mean, we know it's a Republican state and, and if you, you know, if you're in the general election and you're a statewide candidate, you've got a, a big advantage. I mean, that's, but he had legitimate competition in the primary this year. And <laughs> I, how has he managed, do you think, to be just for Part of it, I think, is right place, right time. That is part of it. Second is he has, I was almost going to use a curse word. That too is fine. He has basically, as close as you can possibly get to putting his face at the derriere of, of MAGA, essentially. Yeah. And so he is so tight with that. He's got rewarded for it. Mm-hmm. He shifted to where he's now, you know, the spokesman when it comes to attack. Anybody attacking Texas values, we're going to go after trans kids. We're going to go after this. We're going to go after that. Those red meat issues resonate, we know, with a certain percentage of Republican voters, which are the primary voters. They tend to be his base of support for a general election. You got a lot of people who are like, after seven years, going, "What was he indicted for? I don't even understand the issue," yeah. and they don't get it about the fact that securities fraud is involved here. That is not just securities fraud; it's also, I don't know, harassment in his office, questions mm. about 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 corruption in his own office, Attorney General. There's also the whole relationship, which I think is a little bit incestuous. Myself, yes, I know they're married, but a state senator being married to the Attorney General of Texas to me is a concern. But voters, you can't put that on a bumper sticker. So instead, what do we get? We get Paxton following that Republican playbook right now of uh, Rochelle Garza's radical, radical. She's going to open the borders. I like to know who thought open borders, open borders, open borders for every Republican candidate was a way to go. I get some flyer for, I forget her name, who's running for, for land commissioner. She's going to open the borders. Buckingham. Yeah, uh, yeah Buckingham. And what she's saying? We're going to close the borders. We're going to stop Biden's yeah. inflation. I'm like, you have nothing to do with either one. <laughs> but there we are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even even the uh, the Beto O'Rourke, he's going to defund the police. I mean, <laughs> Beto, I mean he's not running local no. police departments. No. You know, uh, ironically, if we want to be perfectly honest here, the Republicans are more likely to defund the police if you talk to Harris County, County officials County. right now. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um. We're in this unique uh, point in history. We're coming off of uh, Donald Trump refusing to accept the 2020 uh, presidential election results, the January 6, 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Um, I'm just curious, like how how concerned you are about you know the future of of the, of, 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 of our, our ability to have a functioning democracy in this country, <laughs> what, what the prospects are. Excellent question because it's actually been brought up many times in, in our classes. Actually, before I answer that question, I should note two of the three top Republican officials in the state are essentially our election deniers, Dan Patrick 
and Greg and Ken Paxton, who, by the way, joined the lawsuits regarding regarding you know the whole election denial stuff. Greg Abbott has been disingenuous, but at the same time, I think we know where his heart is. So you have a real problem here, in that you have a substantial portion of the electorate who are not agreeing or somehow buying into you know, the legitimacy of our system, essentially, by accepting the results of an election. I don't care. You got apparently Carrie Lake's people in Arizona saying, well, unless Carrie wins, it's going to be election fraud there, too. You had Bolsonaro people yesterday. And in fact, MAGA people, I'm using Steve Bannon, saying it's been stolen, a stolen election in Brazil. Is uh, My fear is that every single election we're now going to have, what? Next city council race in San Antonio? It's stolen from me. I mean, it has to end. Because this coarsening is going to lead to delegitimizing the system and opening the door to a greater acceptance, and this is one of my greatest fears, a greater acceptance of authoritarianism, a greater acceptance of a reduction in rights and a strengthening of the hand of those in authority. Well, one of the things that concerned me is, and, and part of this is kind of a semantic thing and maybe doesn't doesn't mean as much, but it, it's, it's started to concern me a little bit more in, over the past couple of years is, you know, among people uh, in the in the Republican Party, um, over the years, I've heard the, the, the argument made that we know we're not a democracy. You know, a constitutional republic. Oh, uh, which again, I, I get. You know, I feel like. Oh God, I run into that as a professor. And which again, I, I kind of put that aside. I thought, well, you know, it's it's, it's semantics. Who cares? But it, uh, my recollection is, I think this was after the November twenty twenty election. You had uh, Senator Mike Lee saying something along the lines of, you know. Democracy is really not what this country is all about. You know, it's about oh. it's about preserving liberty. That's 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 what the basis of our country. It's not democracy, and that 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 kind of spooked me a little bit because I thought, you know, he, he's just one senator, but I think there are others in the Republican Party who probably see things the way he does. And I thought, if, if we're really getting to a point where we're thinking with it, democracy is not really the the objective here. If 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 a democratic system isn't producing the results that we want, yeah, then. They'll chuck it for something else. Yeah. I mean, you'd be amazed how often I get emails from irate people in the public, especially if I write a commentary for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> but especially I'll get stuff, you know, and they're usually with F-bombs involved and such as well. America is not a democracy. It's a republic. Yes. To which I'm like, okay, technically, okay, democracy is not mentioned. Yeah. It's a, it's a constitutional republic with the democratic mechanisms that are in place. Mm -hmm. It's called representative democracy. If you doubt that's the case, then, you know, I guess you're not voting for members of the House, the Senate, legislature, whomever, that you don't understand the way that checks and balances works in this country. And you need to take our POL 1013 American politics class, for God's sakes. <laughs> Thank God the legislature requires it for all colleges and universities in the state. Otherwise, people will get no exposure to this stuff, which is even more frightful. Um, and so you listen to this and you're thinking, okay, what's your alternative? Plebiscary democracy in which we have a strong man basically determining national policy and referenda. You know, that, that's the end of, of, of not just democratic rule. That's the end of freedom that you so, supposedly so hold dear. It will go by the wayside very quickly. And there are many examples in, in history, not in our country, fortunately, but in a number of countries where that happens, where somebody takes power. And then they decide because in the name of national security, in the name of a national emergency, in the name of stability, we have to measure temporarily certain things. And those temporary things become much more permanent over time. 
And then that's when we all will be fleeing for, for Canada or Mexico. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> well, along those lines, uh, I think I think part of what's creating this this climate is a sense that um, people on in in the opposition party they're not just the opposition anymore they're the enemy and they're 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 evil and they're trying to destroy the country and then that sort of mindset sort of thing justifies a lot of extreme behavior and uh, last Friday morning um, someone broke into the the home of the U.S. Speaker of the House the Democratic Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi apparently looking for her ended up attacking. Her, uh, her husband and, and uh, sent him to the hospital. Uh, fortunately, it looks like he's going he's to survive the, the attack. But the person is, based on what we've heard, is a, is a right-wing extremist. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a horrifying uh, incident. You know, but we, we have had, we've certainly in this country gotten used to the, the, the idea that there are deranged individuals who will, you know, threaten or, or, or commit acts of violence against political figures or celebrities. Um, it's a horrible thing that we've gotten used to it, but, but this does happen. But the th one of the things that really shocked me about this story was not just the, the incident itself, but the reaction to it. And the fact that from Republicans, what I, when I saw them, either elected officials or people who you know, represent the party, when they were interviewed, there was a lot of defensiveness, saying, "Well, we're we, we have we're not to blame for this," or some even saying, "It's uh, democratic crime is the result of, of democratic policies," as if, as if this was just a standard crime, as if he got mugged when he was walking <laughs> right. down the street. This was yeah. a political assassination attempt. Thank you. But so there's that kind of thing. But you also have someone like uh, Jesse Waters on Fox News. I think his quote was something uh, like, uh, "A lot of people, uh, a lot of people get hit with with hammers or something," which you know, I. And uh, you had Donald Trump Jr. retweeting uh, uh, someone who, who basically uh, mocked this attack. Um, so I, 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 I don't really know where I'm going with this, aside from just wondering what you make of, of – I, I, as a student of history, I mean, when you look at assassination attempts uh, against uh, – political figures in this country. I mean, it, it, my memory is that there was, there was no partisanship at that point, that, that, that there was kind of this unified response. There was compassion for the, for the person, for the family, and sort of people rallying behind that person. And, and we're not seeing that now. No, we're not. In fact, what we've seen this as a coarsening of our politics. In fact, there's a phrase I would like people to put, commit to memory. The cruelty is the point when it comes to the way that, that people are posting this stuff. That you know, and if it's not the cruelty that they're posting, it's about what aboutism. What, what about what the Democrats said about this and about that? Okay, here's a novel idea. How about both sides set aside and actually act civil? Novel idea. Act like human beings. To to somehow claim, as some people claim, this was a false flag. It's designed to 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 force to force you know yet greater measures to try to put down MAGA and put down. No, it's called. Spewing years and years worth of insane QAnon hatred. Hi, QAnon people, if you're listening. Um, <laughs> they're not listening. Yeah. <laughs> I think our ratings are really yeah. low. Yeah. Same, actually. Yeah. So, to, 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 to somehow claim, you know, all this just lunatic fringe stuff and to somehow, you know, and for a former president to give a nod to it on a regular basis, to encourage violence, and he does in his rallies, he talks about beating up and jailing reporters. And then if you read 
you know, his supporters who are retweeting stuff and saying their own stuff or talking about executing reporters, ec executing academics. Okay. That ain't America. The one at least I grew up in. And to move toward that direction is the end of what we knew of this country and our so-called democratic experiment. I can't say democratic to certain people though, hmm. you know, because it's not democracy. Um, but, you know, I, I think I, and I'm old enough to remember, you know, Reagan's attempted assassination. Okay, people made jokes. Even Reagan made jokes about it. I mean, he made jokes about it when he came back and gave a joint speech to Congress, for goodness sakes. Made a joke the day he was shot to the, to the, uh, to the surgeons. But you think about, especially, honestly, I, I, I sometimes would argue, and there's a debate in poli sci about this, you know, kind of when this, this move toward what seems to be almost an exponential move toward extremism has taken place. Some could argue, well, after Bush Gore, eh, maybe, kind of. Um, after the, the Gulf War, so the Iraq War started, eh, maybe. Um, I still tend to trace it from the time Obama was elected, that you begin to see this extremism become much more acceptable. The Tea Party movement, as it started out, started out as, as an opposition to spending. But then it kind of, kind of, metastasize, I wasn't even going to say metamorphosis, metastasize into something much more virulent, much more hardcore right wing. And, and in that atmosphere, in that environment, Trump was able to roll right into place and was able to get full, take full advantage of it. And what we've seen, especially since 2015-16, is this just real move toward polarization much more so than I think we've experienced at any time since, well, before the American Civil War. Not that I'm saying there's going to be a second Civil War, but this high degree of, of polarization is, should, is and should be concerning to all because th th it's got to be toned down because you're going to continue to see nut jobs attack politicians. You're going to, keep, you're going to see them attack individuals who hold political views. You just are. Mm -hmm. It's got to stop. Do you think, I mean, but is there really any way back from that? Like once you reach that's this kind of part, I mean, that's the thing. Like yeah. I, I just, I have a real question about whether you can, <laughs> can you, can you reel it back in I this kind of hateful I, yeah. rhetoric, the political violence? How do you, how do you end it? I don't know that it's, it's I, stoppable. I, it's funny you say that. I would agree. It's almost, you know, the, the pessimism when you say we've, we've reached the point of no return. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you start seeing things on Twitter with these people who talk about, we just need to separate the red states and blue states. Have fun, red states, because your economy's got about one-fourth of the red of the blue states, but yeah. go for it. Um, you know, you, you see these, these just crazy screeds of people talking about civil war, talking about getting the military to step in, and we've got to do this, we've got to get all these people rounded up, send them to Guantanamo, blah, blah, blah. Just crazy stuff. And I'm not going to fault them, but I will. Social media does play a role here. It's an open platform. Anybody can say pretty much anyway, anything they damn well please. And now with dear old Elon Musk owning the show, you're seeing a spike in all sorts of just, just objectionable, virulent, you know, phraseologies. And, and all of a sudden now we're attacking people of color. We're attacking Jews. We're attacking Muslims. Why? Because now apparently it's fair game to do that. That to me is a symptom of, of a larger problem in our society. And how how do you, I mean, how do you get, you know, pull back from the brink? I mean, education, 
oh, well, and finally I can try to educate people, but a lot of people aren't going to listen to me. Media, the same thing. Oh, well, you guys are all fake media, fake news. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if you're to that point, it's like, my God, how do you do this? Mm-hmm. Religious leaders, nobody's going to listen to them. I mean, I mean, we are, I mean, I, I, I think of my son, 14-year-old, thinking, now, what kind of country is he going to live in yeah. 10, 15 years from now if this crap continues? The answer is it's not a country I want him to live in. I'll move him to Canada. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> one, one theory that I've heard um, is that, looking at this historically, is that for all our the political division that we, you know, that we had going, going back decades, um, that during the Cold War, there was there, this – the country was was united against it. We had a common foe, and the political division sort of uh, took a back seat to that. And once that was gone, the the natural impulse was we started turning inward <laughs> and started and and the conspiracy theory started to really grow. I mean, do you see, there was some of that. Although I would say, even in the fifties and sixties, you had you know John Birch types and, and extreme Republicans screaming about the Absolutely. conspiracy and all this. In the 80s, you had some Democrats, particularly on the left, who opposed, you know, aspects of the Cold War and particularly, you know, Reagan's adventures in Central America and that sort of mm-hmm. thing. But generally, you know, there was that 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 axiom that that politics stops at the water's edge. And there was at least relatively, not completely, but relatively united foreign policy and continuity between Republican and Democratic administrations. Now you can make the argument, well, Reagan kind of broke that. No, he really didn't because even Bush 41 followed and even Clinton followed the same way. Even Bush 43 followed the same way. Although Bush 43 is in some respects, I think, the guy who kind of begins the unraveling of this because of the global war on terrorism, because of the focus on on nation building in both Iraq and Afghanistan. And it broke American foreign policy. It broke the intelligence community. Mm -hmm. And it broke, in many respects, respect by the American public toward those institutions. And so it opened the door. I I have this one person, and hopefully he's not listening to the podcast because he's in in the Houston area. God help me. He's one of these people who was reasonable 15, 20 years ago and is now looking at World Economic Forum, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Bilderbergers and others are basically all in, all in cahoots with each other, controlling one world government. Everything that you're seeing is nothing but false flags. It's like, yeah. <sighs> fortunately, we don't have that many people like that, but it opens the door to that sort of thing. And that's where, again, I, I worry, you know, where do we go politically in this country when you have that stream of thought being given legitimacy? There has to be a way to delegitimize this kind of crazy rhetoric, this kind of just radical rhetoric that plays to the extreme, plays to course to to the most base instincts of individuals. Well, before we wrap things up, I wanted to ask you. Uh, uh, I hate to ask you to play prognosticator here <laughs> because um, you better I, be right. Yeah, yeah. 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 All, all predictions wrong or double your money back. One of the things I've learned actually is, is, is you know that sometimes I've, I've, I've you know when, when I talk you talk to people who are like coaches and stuff oh, like sure. that they're often like the worst at picking oh, like, you are. know the results of games and people who you know campaign <laughs> managers often you know they're often totally wrong, wrong on, on, on uh, predicting political results. But we got you here, so I was going to sure. ask you. Um, so much speculation on the 2024 presidential oh, race already. And, and I mean, do you, when you look at, I mean, Don, it seems obvious Donald Trump's going to run again. I mean, do you, do you think he'll get the nomination? 
If he runs, he will. Yeah. If he doesn't run, let's see what happens with DeSantis in Florida next week, if he survives or not. Yeah. Um, and it's the same thing with Joe Biden. Joe Biden is actually prudent not to say he's yeah. to say he's running for re-election. I think we all know he likely will not run for re-election. I mean, I just who does that? Who's who's the obvious person? To Gavin say? Newsom, I would say. Yeah, I would say he's probably mm. the most likely. Not just me. Um, Kamala Harris, I think we'll give him a run for his money. There's a few others as well, uh, but I think Newsom has has positioned himself, honestly, to be the alternative for Democrats. Now, DeSantis, there are going to be Abbott people listening. Oh, Greg Abbott. Okay, okay, fine. Greg Abbott for president. Um, at CPAC, he registered exactly 0% support um, back in Dallas a few months ago. Um, nobody thinks about Greg Abbott running for president, to which then Abbott would say, well, yeah, Donald Trump was at 0.1% back in 2015. Okay. With all due respect to the governor, he doesn't have quite the bombastic personality of, of Donald Trump. Um, so you would assume Donald Trump would run. Now, the question is, based on everything we know, based on potential for indictments, potential for all sorts of things in the next few months. You know, could we see a prospect where you have Donald Trump running essentially while under indictment, like Ken Paxton, um, mm-hmm. running for president? Quite possible. You know, he, we could even go so far as to have him, you know, sitting in jail temporarily and running for president. We've seen that with members of Congress do it. Uh, there's nothing to stop him. I mean, so, I mean, we could see, I mean, Conventional wisdom would say it's going to be it's going to be a replay of 2020, Trump versus Biden. That would be the conventional wisdom. I don't, you know, it's one of these things. Bet bet the bet the garbage, not the rent, on that happening. Would Newsom? Uh, do you think he'd be a formidable nominee if he if that happened? I, I think he would. He'd be able to raise an insane amount of money. Yeah. Um, he the the thing about Newsom is he survived a recall challenge. He survived Kimberly Guyful. Um, well, that, I was going to ask. I, I, I wasn't sure about you like going no, that area. I, was going no, like, that was, I went there. How is that going to play out? In, in the, oh, that will make a, for a bizarre yeah. presidential election. Yeah. It just will. Oh, it's my gonna, God. I mean, but this is American politics these days. I was afraid you were going to ask for a prediction on O'Rourke versus Abbott. I can give you three. <laughs> See, I'm hedging my bets big time. Good. Okay, the one, one is the conventional, that Abbott wins by about anywhere between five, seven, maybe eight points. Yeah. That's the conventional one, based on polling, based on averages of averages. The other is that Abbott outperforms those numbers, mm. much less likely. Yeah. And there's the third scenario, and there, I see a path to this. It's not an easy path. About 22 to 24% of new voters in Texas are new voters. They've never voted before. Now, we can make assumptions on those new voters in the aftermath of the Dobbs decision. How many of them are women? Persons of color who are concerned about certain issues mm-hmm. related especially to, to reproductive rights and to Uvalde, among others. If those people turn out as they did in Kansas for the constitutional amendment question, all of a sudden we're looking at Governor Beto O'Rourke. Not by a lot, but possible. Is it likely? No. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think given O'Rourke's history, I think we're going to see an election outcome that's going to be much closer than people think. Again, I, mm. I, I'm not saying O'Rourke's going to win. Yeah. It'd be, okay, as a political scientist, I would love to see it happen because 
as Mao Zedong once said, there is chaos under heaven and the situation is excellent. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what a way to wrap things up. <laughs> Professor Taylor, it's great having you on the, on the podcast. Pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. And for everybody listening in, I uh, hope you're doing well. Get out and vote if you haven't already. And uh, we'll be back with you next week. I think we're going to actually do some, a podcast next week, the day after the election, because we want to get uh, be able to talk about the results. So I uh, hope you're doing well. Take care.